listen to the best of the church's music for the Advent season at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the Advent season. LutheranPublicRadio.org. In your twilight years of your life, are you going to look back and say, boy, I sure had great Instagram photos? Would it not be more meaningful if you had a grandchild's hand to hold on to, to sing hymns with you, and to encourage you, say, Grandma, I will see you again. I can't wait. The land that we're talking about, the land of Israel, God owns it. And anyone who's been on it, biblically or otherwise, has only been a manager or a steward. Jesus clearly believed in the Trinity. He rose from the dead, and until you do, I'm going with Jesus as the best witness to the truth of what is meant in the Christian church by the term Trinity. When we're talking about the, the liturgy, what we're not talking about is a style of worship. Rather, we're talking about a theology of worship. Aerobatic pilots, at least this one, love issues, etc. Clear! <laughs> Jesus says if anyone does not hate his own father, he cannot be my disciple. Does not hate his own mother, he cannot be my disciple. Does not hate his own wife, children, brothers, and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. That doesn't sound like Jesus, but it is in Luke chapter 14. So what should we make of that statement that Jesus seems to require hating people for being a disciple of his? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to talk about Jesus' teaching on discipleship with Dr. Jeffrey Oshwald of Concordia Seminary. We'll spend some time with Pastor Tom Baker teaching a Sunday school lesson on the praying king Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18 and 19. And then we'll discuss the pro-life message with Scott Klusendorf. He's president of Life Training Institute. Dr. Jeffrey Oshwald is professor of New Testament at Concordia Seminary, author of a column for the Lutheran Witness magazine titled The Love and Hates of a Disciple of Jesus. Dr. Oshwald, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. So in Luke 14... Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What do we find so disturbing about that statement? Apart from the simple word hate itself, which parents today often treat as a bad word that their children aren't allowed to say, we wonder how is it possible that our Lord Jesus, the one who teaches us how to love, apart from whom we don't even really know what love is, the one who said, love one another as I have loved you. How could this Jesus, how could he make hating a prerequisite for being a disciple of his? Can the passage really mean that? It's disturbing and perplexing at the same time. How should we understand the word hate in that context? 
When you read the literature on this passage, or hear sermons and discuss it among、uh, fellow Christians, it's very common to begin by saying the Greek word for hate that's used here, and the same thing would be true for the Hebrew word for hate in the Old Testament, have a very wide range of meanings. They're really as wide in meaning as our English word, which is wider than we sometimes stop to think. The Greek dictionary that most of us use when we're translating from the New Testament offers these two basic meanings for the word: to have a strong aversion to something, to hate or detest it. That's probably what comes to mind first. But it can also be used in the sense of disinclined to choose something, or you disregard something, you prefer something else. If we compare, for instance, our passage from Luke 14 with Matthew 10:37,、uh, there we hear Jesus saying, "Instead of hate your father and mother, and so on, that we must not love them more than we love him." And that's easy for us to understand and accept. It sounds very different from the word hate. So, when we read it in Luke 14, we should read it together with. Jesus's words in Matthew 10, which of course are making a very similar point, and we're realizing he's talking about loving one person over against the kind of love we feel for another person, and who takes priority, whose love has the greatest claim on us, and the one whose love doesn't have that greatest claim, we can say refer to that in biblical terms as hating that person instead of loving them. Putting them first. Where else in Scripture do we find this word "hate"? Thinking of the Greek word used here in Luke, we find it occurring often in the New Testament. I think it's some forty times throughout the New Testament. Most of those passages talk about the world or the enemies of God and His people hating them. And of course, we're very familiar with that usage. But there are a couple passages that are quite challenging for us, and I think the one that probably stands out the most is Paul's use of the term in Romans, where he quotes、uh, the words from Malachi、uh, with God speaking, saying, "Jacob I loved, Esau I hated." There again, we're we're up to this kind of perplexing and disturbing question of what does it mean for God to hate anybody, and why would He say, "I love him, but I hate this other person"? So it's a an idea that's present all over in the New Testament, and one that we have to wrestle with and come to an understanding with if we're going to be able to hear Jesus and the other authors of the New Testament rightly. What is what you call divine hatred? When I was doing some work on the wider background of this idea of hate, really, I was trying to make sure that we were right when we make the claim that hate can simply mean love less than somebody else. I was looking at both the way biblical authors use the word hate and the way non-biblical Greek authors from roughly the same time period as the New Testament also use the idea. And I came across this unusual expression about the gods hating someone, and that got me thinking 
not about the Greek gods and even what these Greek writers were imagining, but how are we to understand when God Himself, the one true God, says that He hates someone or hates something? What might that mean? And if we look at both the passage from Luke 14, and again that passage I just mentioned too from Romans 9, we see that Paul is talking about very specific situations in Romans 9, just as our Lord is in Luke 14. We're not talking about choosing people for salvation, but we're talking about God's unfolding plans for various specific individuals. How he will include them in his purposes, how he will call them, what tasks he will assign to them, and he definitely chooses individuals and groups of people to serve him in very particular ways and for very particular purposes. He doesn't treat us as simply interchangeable, and God does choose some people for specific tasks and not everyone for those specific tasks. We even know that our identity as people of God comes from His choice, His loving choice, and His working through His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to make us His own. So that Paul can even say, "Being born a child of Abraham, that is biological child, doesn't make you child of Abraham in the most important ways." The most important way to be Abraham's offspring is through faith. Faith worked through God's Spirit and according to His purposes. So, thinking again of Jacob and Esau, God chooses Jacob for some very specific purposes, especially to be the one who is the heir of the covenant, the one with whom and with whose descendants. He will make his covenant promises. When God makes a choice like that, it may seem, from a human perspective, like He is loving one person and hating another, and God Himself can use that language. But we know that even when God hates someone in that special sense, He's acting out of love. He's doing what's best for that person. In this case. Esau and all his children are included in all the nations of the world that will be blessed through Jacob and his descendants. So God is not rejecting; He's not wishing Esau to be destroyed or completely outside the realm of blessing. God will continue to bless Esau and his descendants in the biblical story. And Esau and Jacob have a very affectionate reunion later in Genesis, so that we have to read these things, these references to love and hate, in their context, and over against the background of God's all-wise and all-loving purposes for each and every one of us. I think a very beautiful example of this is the twelve-year-old Jesus. In his father's house, as Luke records it in chapter two, I think a lot of people wrestle with this passage as well because it seems like Jesus is showing disrespect to his mother and to Joseph, his guardian, like he's not really honoring his parents. 
And yet, as we continue to read, we see that this one father's house, this is the house that Jesus must be in. This is the love that has complete claim on him and stands as more important than any other claim, even a claim like that of his own mother, like the hold that that has on him. So not disrespecting Mary or Joseph, he loves them with a righteous love while it seems like he's disregarding them, that he's preferring his heavenly father over against his earthly guardian and his earthly mother. And yet this is the way Jesus is showing his love for them. There is no better way that he could do that, in fact, than by doing his father's will. That's what he has come to do. He has come to be their Lord and Savior too. And so he puts this love of his heavenly Father above all things. This is the place he must be. This is the will he must follow, the voice he must listen to. And that might have stung Mary and Joseph a little bit, probably required some thought and reflection, probably even a little bit of prayer. I'm sure that's one more thing that Mary treasured up in her heart trying to make sense of. And yet, ultimately, we can see how what looks like a preference for one over another actually, in the end, turns out to be a perfect love, showing the right love to everyone. So, to summarize that, is Jesus making hatred a requirement for salvation in Luke 14? That's a tricky question because when we start to read the passage, Jesus is describing what it means to follow him. He's saying, if you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. And so we reason with ourselves, well, how can I be saved and not be his disciple? So if I have to do this to be a disciple, isn't that making it a requirement for salvation? And yet, Jesus never speaks that way. And again, we have to pay attention to the context and to the very questions that are being asked and answered. If someone asks Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Jesus never says, hate your parents and you will be saved. That question, what must I do to be saved, is always answered in the Bible by saying there is in fact nothing you can do to be saved. All you can do is trust in the Lord. He will save you. Trust in him with your whole heart. So when we ask about discipleship, not in terms of salvation, but in terms of living out our lives as followers of the Lord Jesus, then we begin to see that we do have to make choices in our lives. We have to assign values to things, importance to things, even human relationships and the demands and responsibilities they place on us. Following the Lord Jesus transforms all of that. We know and we trust in him. And in following him, we now ask, what's the best way to love my father or mother, my brother or sister? And it's not giving them absolute control over me and my will. They belong to him before they belong to me. Just as he is my Lord, he is their Lord, and so his claim on them is more important than any claim we might have on each other in terms of our human relationships. 
So again, in this passage, we're not asking the question, what do I do to be saved? We know that answer. We're asking, as the saved people of Christ, how do we live together with one another, and how do we witness to that salvation, to that faith, when we meet a world that's always confused by us and often hostile toward us? Dr. Jeffrey Oshwald is our guest. We're talking about Jesus teaching on discipleship. So the bottom line, how is Jesus teaching us to live with others in that difficult passage? Thanks to you, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality with Apple Podcasts. Please help us reach more listeners in 2024 by making a year-end gift. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. Declaring to you the whole counsel of God, you're listening to Issues Etc. Greetings in Christ, and thank you for listening to Issues Etc. If your vocation or travel lands you in northwest Louisiana, come and be our guest at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Bowser City, Louisiana. Join us as we gather around God's gift of word and sacrament. That's Emmanuel Lutheran Church, Bowser City, Louisiana. For service times and directions, look us up at ilcbosier.net. ilcbosier.net. Our children are always a blessing to us, but not only are we blessed by them, but we have opportunities to bless them as well. Pastor Christopher Nuttleman in the December issue of The Lutheran Witness, takes up the topic of blessing your children, how to bless them in your home with the Word of God and prayer. To learn more, pick up your copy of the December issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit cph.org slash witness to subscribe or visit witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. talking about Jesus teaching on discipleship with Dr. Jeffrey Oswald, professor of New Testament at Concordia Seminary, author of a column for the Lutheran Witness magazine titled The Loves and Hates of a Disciple of Jesus. The Lutheran Witness interprets the world from a Lutheran perspective. An annual print and digital subscription costs less than $25. Learn more at cph.org slash witness or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040, The Lutheran Witness magazine. Dr. Oswald, how is Jesus teaching us to live with others in this passage? When we follow Jesus, when we have him as our Lord, there are times when putting him first will mean, in this sense, hating our loved ones, even, as he says, hating our own lives. 
We obey the will of our Lord with a singleness of heart, with our whole mind and soul and body and strength. As we do that, we are at the same time entrusting the people around us, both our loved ones and even the strangers we're encountering, we're entrusting those to the love of our same Lord. As I said a moment ago, before that man was my father, he was God's son. My husband, my wife, my son, my daughter, these people are not truly mine. The relationship of love that binds us together doesn't really have any meaning until we understand that as part of the way we are also loving and serving our Lord. We bring all of these loves, all of these relationships together under our overarching obedience to him and to his will. We know that when we put the will or desire of anyone else above God, that's idolatry. That's not discipleship. That's not following Jesus. And so we, as his disciples, wrestle with the hard questions of how do I love this person since I am a follower of Jesus and the person I love either is, and I want to strengthen him in that relationship, or she's not yet, and I want to bring her into that relationship. That means I have to always, again, submit my ideas of what might be best in this situation to a comparison with the will of God. What would my Lord Jesus want me to do? How can I love this person best according to his will? And sometimes that means putting this person second. Sometimes it means saying no to them. Sometimes it means doing things that others might not like or desire. But again, as Jesus reminds us a little bit later in Luke, no one can serve two masters. Again, you hear the familiar language, right? We will love one and hate the other. But when you try to have two lords, one always ends up being preferred, being the loved one. And in our case, we know without a doubt, the Lord that we love, the one master we serve, that's our Lord Jesus. What does it mean to hate oneself? That's also a difficult concept in a culture that stresses self-esteem and self-worth. Uh, how could we hate ourselves and think that's going to be pleasing to the God who made us, who gave us life, who made this self? And yet, we know that hating our own life in this world is, as Jesus says in John 12, keeping it for eternal life. Again, we have to come back to that transformational values, that new understanding of what's most important, of even what true life is as well as what true love is. All those things take on new meaning for us, new clarity, as we follow our Lord Jesus. My voice cannot be allowed to countermand, to outshout, even to outwine the will of my Lord. So when I hear myself saying something that's making a greater claim on me, saying, do this, don't listen to that voice of, of the Lord Jesus. You're more important. This is what will be best for you. I have to hate that voice. 
I have to set it aside. I have to tell myself, you have no claim on me. I belong to another. I will serve my Lord. So we hate ourselves with this kind of divine hatred, which means we put God's will before everything, even when it feels like we have become our own worst enemies. And again, we're familiar with Paul's wrestling with this in Romans 7, where he talks about a war going on inside himself. And there are competing voices demanding his obedience and his allegiance. And he must learn how to properly hate the one and to truly love the other. How do you respond to someone who says that Jesus is giving us permission to foster hatred toward others? In Luke 14, Jesus is talking to the person who has come to him and the person who wants to be a disciple, a follower. The challenge of this word from Jesus is to learn what it means to hate in a way that's consistent with following him. And this is certainly not the kind of hatred that the world knows and understands and practices on a daily basis. There are plenty of clear condemnations in Scripture of that kind of hatred. Think of 1 John 3, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's the very opposite of being a disciple. The kind of hatred we're talking about here is not something we need permission for. It's something we need divine assistance for. If we're going to hate following the example of our Lord Jesus, that is, if we're going to love what should be loved first and foremost, we need God's help to do that. It's not something we would naturally gravitate to. It's not even something we can do on our own at all. That kind of hatred, the kind we might want permission for, is not the divine hatred that Jesus is talking about here. It's not a hatred that's consistent with being his disciple. And it should cause us to ask, if we don't quite know what hatred is, do we really know what love is? And I think in the end, that's what's so valuable about this challenging passage, that it asks me to rethink, to reevaluate, to ask God to show me how to love and to hate like a follower of Jesus truly should. Better even, like Jesus himself did. Finally, what promise is there for us when all of our relationships are comprehended in Christ? I think it can be helpful here to think back to Peter's question that he asks in Matthew chapter 19. In verse 27 of Matthew 19, he asks Jesus, We've left everything, and we have followed you. What will we have? Leaving everything, I think, is another way of saying hating everything. It's preferring the one thing of being with Jesus to all these meaningful and even very good things that characterized Peter's life before he left home and traveled with Jesus, literally following him in that sense. No property, no title, 
No relationship, no personal comfort, no safety. Nothing was valued more highly than answering Jesus' call, following him, being his disciple. It didn't matter what or who it was, these men did leave everything. To Peter's question, Jesus says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. In eternity, relationships will all be made right and we will be one giant houseful of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters who now can love each other truly, fully, completely, rightly. That's the promise that awaits us. In the meantime, we find great joy as we grow in love for one another. We see our human, selfish, often misguided kind of love being transformed by the love of Christ within us. At the same time, in those difficult moments, when we do have to say, right now, my love for God demands that I say no to you. Those moments when we do have to, so to speak, hate with a divine hatred, we take comfort and strength knowing that as we do that, we are entrusting our loved ones to the one to whom they truly belong. We're entrusting them to his will, not our own. So even though they may not always feel that way, especially at first or immediately, we know that in the end, this is the best way to show love for them. Dr. Jeffrey Oshwald is professor of New Testament at Concordia Seminary. He is author of a column for the Lutheran Witness magazine titled, The Loves and Hates of a Disciple of Jesus. Dr. Oshwald, thank you very much. Thank you, Todd. We will be teaching a Sunday school lesson on the praying King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18 and 19 with Pastor Tom Baker of Law and Gospel next. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue in the prophet Micah with prophets denounced, the mountain of the Lord's house, the Lord of the whole earth, O little town of Bethlehem, and a remnant delivered. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Expert guests, expansive topics, extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com.